and welcome aboard the Battleship Retention. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David, yes. how you doing? Uh, I'm, uh, I'm doing very well, actually, um, because of uh, good things in my personal life. That's right. Um, but uh, I've been busy because of these good things in my personal life, and I haven't even taken a glance mm-hmm. at the new film uh, nerd list that's tearing up Twitter. Yeah. Everyone's got something to say. Because we all we all knew it was coming, right? Yes, it's obviously. August of 2016. Of course, it's time for us to to decide what are the 100 greatest films of the 21st century so far. That was uh, that this was is, that a was landmark. A, that was a tweet that our editor uh, at large Scott and I put out there. That uh, right. he said, "Yes, what better time than <laughs> 16 years in at yeah. the end of the summer uh, to do this uh, to do this list." And then I said, hey, it gives us something to focus on instead of the summer, because this has not been a good summer for movies. Um, but I have had a number of interaction. Is that true? Let's see. Okay. I think it depends on how you define that. Okay. Whether or not it's been a good summer for movies, right? I, I think... Because uh, if you're looking at I summer defi- movies... I define it artistically. Uh, and some... Uh, I feel... I, I don't remember if last summer... I think last summer was good, but now I can't remember why. Um, but this was the summer that a lot of people said, oh, that was a letdown or that was a letdown or whatever it is. Movies that yeah. people were looking forward to like oh, okay. Jason Bourne and Suicide Squad. And those are only the recent ones just kind of let a lot of people down. Um, okay. you know, and then you have like big flops like Warcraft, which is not a big flop worldwide, but in the U S it is. Okay. And then Ben Hur being like he, a huge flop. Um, you know. ah, okay, yes, because uh, I guess a little over a week ago, people were tweeting, like, what are the best movies of the summer? My top three are not summer movies. They're yeah. uh, Our Little Sister, Tony Robbins, I Am Not Your Guru, and Into the Forest. Those are the three big summer movies for me. So these are movies you saw during the summer, that came out during the they summer? They were released this summer. Okay, yeah. yeah. Released in America this summer. Yeah, my favorite is probably Hell or High Water, which I think you can make an argument is not a summer movie. Right. I would say it is not. If it's limited release, I'd say it's not a summer movie. Um, but uh, and yeah, and I've I've uh, been talking with people um, on Facebook in the various groups that I'm a part of. Um, they would put this out and say, you know, how many of you? How many has everyone seen? And I've only seen sixty six of them. And uh, so I, I was hoping I would have seen more. But at the same time, whatever. You know, like I don't know. You time. mean of the, of the BBC? List. Yeah, yeah. He wanted to say BFI. Uh, the BBC list. Yes. And, um, you know, um, what's interesting is I won't specify cause I'm, I'm the groups that I run with, um, with as a function of more than one lesson, uh, are movie enthusiasts, but I wouldn't go so far as say they are movie snobs or movie nerds. They okay. like, mo- they love movies, but they don't really see a lot of the, the more obscure ones that to you and I probably seem like the height of mainstream like Zodiac and stuff like that. Um, and so I'm trying not to sound elitist. Uh, I don't look down on them or anything like this, but, uh, but it will bother me if they start getting kind of populist about it. Um, and so there'll be people that say like, it's like, I haven't even heard of most of the movies on this list. This is ridiculous. They didn't mention this, this, this. And it's like, yeah, sorry. While they were not mentioning the stuff you've seen, they were mentioning the stuff you haven't seen. Sorry. That's the way that goes sometimes. I didn't know regular people, civilians, knew about this list. Well, that's I've the only thing. seen mentioned on these quote are, unquote film Twitter. These are groups that are uh, based on film podcasts. Okay. But they're not. I see. 
I see. Okay. They're not Battleship Pretension Film Podcast, if you'll pardon me. <laughs> and uh, it's, man, it's hard to tiptoe around this. But, um, and again, most people, are, you know what? A lot of people said, so like, looks like I've got a, a checklist here. And that's great, you know? Uh, I guess. I, I just feel like, I know we were joking about what Scott joked about, but yeah. it is true. It's like, it seems so weirdly ill-defined. I mean, I get, no, it's not ill-defined. It's very specifically defined. Yes, it seems, <laughs> very specifically. It's, it seems... Uh, uh, ill motivated, I guess. Well, and it's like, why, why would you need a checklist? It's like, Oh, these are all the films of the last 16 years. I've been <laughs> trying to miss out on like it, if, it, if it were yeah. the greatest 100 films of the 20th century. Sure. Yeah. Sure. That makes sense. That century's well, done it's and, done and dusted. Here's the thing is it's a list of, let me put it this way in a way that will once again, probably insult the people that I am talking about. But again, it's, it's, it's only a select few of them. That's fine. Um, the, uh, a lot of them are not super acquainted with like older films and often older films means anything older than 25 years with Mm -hmm. the exception of E.T. and Jaws and Wizard of Oz. But, uh, and so you have, so with this list, you actually have an opportunity with people like that who are not necessarily suspicious of older movie, but it's not their first instinct. You have an opportunity to say, well, these movies are new. These movies are, have been around for the last 16 years. Uh, well, not all of them, obviously they're not all from the year 2000. Um, (laughs) but like these are from the last 16 years. So, you know, and a lot of them are foreign. So that's the thing you might have to fight through. But at the same time, like these are movies that the, you can make the argument. These are movies that have something to say about the world we live in today. And we've been living in today. And so based on that, this, this 100, like if you go, this is kind of how I look at lists these days. Um, if I were to watch these hundred movies, would I get a nice little education on what film is as an art form? And, uh, yes, the answer with this is a definitive. Yes. Do you know what's number one? No, I have no idea. It is Mulholland drive. Oh, that's a great, I'm, I am on board this list now. Fantastic. Number two in the mood for love. Oh man. These are my kind of people. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's the BBC. They're uh, snooty. Good for them. Yeah. Oh, those are two two fantastic movies. And I don't remember what number three is. I think uh, there will be blood. It might be number three. It's definitely in the top ten. And uh, you might recall that that's uh, when we did our our look back uh, on like the the aughts, yes. the best movies of the aughts. I put there will be blood at number one. Um, did I as well? No, you. It wasn't on your. Oh no, I had uh, this is England. Yes, uh, but yes. there's blows on my list. Was it? I don't recall. I'm almost um, certain it was. I only remember what was on my, what was my number one. Um, um, but, uh, all right, one more thing about this and then we'll, um, we'll, 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 we'll move on to the actual episode. <clears throat> Cause I've seen, like I said, I haven't actually looked at the list, but I've seen it mentioned on Twitter. So I've seen a couple of the films that are on there, or maybe these are just films that people say, mm-hmm. I wish are on there. And I do think that subconsciously as an American, I have come to define the 21st century as in a way kind of starting with nine 11. Does that make sense to you? Yes. If there are movies that people like I've seen, I've seen people, I don't know if it's on the list. There's some people, someone was just mentioning, but someone mentioned Memento. And I was like, I guess that is, but I feel like Memento is from an yeah. older time. Someone said almost famous. And yeah, and it's like, yeah, I guess so. If you want to be some kind of jerk, it does feel like it kicked off with that because it just, because it's, just, it's so w- epochal wars started and yeah. that's international. Yeah. And then, you know, concepts of terrorism, we had them before, but they certainly changed after that. 
um, politics changed, the national conversation changed, and the international conversation yeah. changed. Like we're still we're still feeling the echoes of that. Like when or, when Orlando happened, what did people say? They said this is the worst act of terrorism on American soil since 9-11. Like, that is our go-to as as a reference point, certainly as Americans. But having talked to, I'd say, a fair number of international listeners of uh, both BP and More Than One Lesson, um, 9-11 was a big, it's a big thing internationally. Like, it's a, maybe not so much now, maybe it doesn't have the echoes now that it used to, but certainly at the time, it was something everyone knew about and everyone realized this is a big thing and it's going to have because, an impact. Well, I think, yeah, because it, it changed our culture and it didn't happen yeah. right away because things take time to make, but I wonder, okay, let me ask you this on this BBC list. Okay. Is the 25th hour in the top 10? I don't think it's in the top 10, but it's in there. It's in there because when the 25th hour came out, it felt like, like, oh my God, like something has changed now. Like yes. this is like, maybe it's not even nine eleven. Maybe for me with movies, 21st century in terms of movies starts with the 25th hour because it seems like it it represented such a huge change. Yeah. I'm getting emotional thinking about it's uh, such a wonderful about film the, about the film, but also obviously about nine 11. Yeah, I guess it, it, we're coming up on 15 years. Um, mm-hmm. now that I think about it. So, uh, yeah, so they should have said, Hey, this is the list for the last 15 years. And then in parentheses, we all know what we're talking about. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, well, this was a fun discussion, more than yeah. I expected it to be. So, yeah. uh, But we got things we got to get to. Okay. I'm, of course, talking about, actually, before I get to our sponsor, um, this is uh, you only have a few more days to email me your lists for the, the top actors and actresses. Can I look just right at you as I say this? <laughs> like I said, I've been very busy. I completely okay. forgot. And um, I also am having a really tough time putting together my actors list. This, I'll say this, uh, of course, the first list that I that I get for this is mine. Okay. And so I have some time to think about it. A lot of people have said this this is the most difficult list I've had to submit to because you know, they did for, we've done directors, we've done various mm-hmm. uh, genres and stuff like that. Um and they said this is the hardest one I've had to submit to. And I'm trying to think why that would be. And I think it's because a director, it's just you're you're sort of thinking in terms of auteur, and you can think like that in terms of performers, but not really. Yeah. You think, well, am I thinking about movie stars or am I thinking about uh, range? You know, what uh, am I thinking about being naturalistic on screen or am I thinking about uh, particularly theatrical on screen? Some actors will do all of these, and it's really a lot of people have said this is yeah. the toughest one. Yeah, and there are some actors. Uh, I don't know. I guess it's late enough that I can kind of mention an actor by sure. name. So I saw a movie recently. We talked about it today. Um, uh, a movie from the early 1960s, I think. Um, and in the and, and Timothy Carey had a small role. Okay. And I see Timothy Carey's name in the credits, and I'm like, oh boy. But I know, like, I already know exactly what kind of character Timothy Carey's going to play because he always plays Timothy Carey. I can't place who that is. Uh, he's the psychotic guy from The Killing, and he plays psychotic guys. Oh, yeah, all right, in got all it. movies. Yeah. Um, and uh, he also is the guy who. Um, uh, wrote and directed uh, the independently financed um, The World's Greatest Sinner, which is one of the oh, okay. weirdest, greatest slash most awful movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, so anyway, what I'm saying is, yeah, uh, if we're talking about range, I don't know that Timothy Carey was a guy that had a huge amount of range, but he yeah. was such like an 
burning ember of a presence on screen that I'm, I was, I'm always excited when I'm watching an old movie and Timothy Carey's name shows up. Yeah. The same could be said for Peter Lorre. I think uh-huh. if, if you I also if, saw a movie with Peter Lorre, in if this, weekend. if this were going to be a list of like the best character actors of all time, I feel like Peter Lorre would be high up there, but at the same time, He's always, when I say he's always Peter Lorre, please don't mistake me. Like Joel Cairo is very different from Hans Beckert in M, but there's not a great deal of range. Uh, him playing Mr. Moto aside, we'll, we'll definitely put that to the side as well. Um, it's, uh, it's a very, it's a very strange, and yet I can't think of anybody who says, oh yeah, I don't care for Peter Lorre. In fact, most people I know that are movie people say, oh yes, I love Peter. L- I love when he's on screen. He's so much fun to watch. Right. Yeah. Um, but for a list like this, especially when you're limiting people only to five uh, actors and five actresses, um, you know, you're asking them to, to really, really cut a lot of good performers out of the, out of there. And uh, yeah. it can be very, very difficult. Yeah. And so, so but you I, got a few days to submit your list. Yeah. Which will now, obviously they will all include Timothy Carey and Peter Laurie. No question about <laughs> it. There's going to be a late surge and this is, and so, and all the emails I've been sending out to our writers say, I need to say like, all right, everyone forget what I said before. We've got a new one and two and it's close. <laughs> In our first ever tie for number one. Um, but uh, yeah, so so you've got uh, through midnight Pacific time of um, Pacific Standard Time, pardon me, of uh, August 31st. Are we 31st. in Standard Time right now? I think so. Okay. Because it's only, everyone says Standard Time all okay. the time. But from what I understand, it's only Standard Time half the year. Oh, okay. It's PST What's- half the year and PDT when it's in daylight time. But I don't know which one is in daylight savings time. Oh gosh, so, I don't know. So I feel like, oh yeah, maybe we're not in standard time right now. Yeah, or maybe we are because wouldn't we be saving daylight in the winter? So maybe I guess it's so. daylight time in the winter. I mean, I hate all of this, so I don't know. Yeah, it's super pedantic, but it's the kind of thing that if I like, if I knew, I'd be I'd be like happy to oh, smugly. Uh, yeah, there's no question. Just like I love reminding you. Uh, Tyler, that um, fall does not start on September first because mm. I know that's a thing that, that that's a burn yourself. Like I know it's not. It's not like I think it does. It's not like I'm like, well, fall obviously going to start in a few weeks. Like I'm not. It's not that I think it does. It's that I think it should, and that's very yeah. different. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, what's with kids going back to school so early these days? Yeah, it was crazy. Just, I was just seeing a back to school. I'm, they, no, they've been back in some cases for like a week and a half at this point. When I was, what are they learning at these fucking kid, schools? You know, when I when when I, in my day, <laughs> up through like fourth grade, I wish listeners when, could have seen what you just did with your thumb. Um, up until like fourth or fifth grade, school started after Labor Day. The Tuesday after Labor Day was when school started. Okay, and then I because I distinctly remember, I think I was in fourth grade when I learned that fifth grade would start in August, and it was like, I mean. There was, you would think that the kids were going to mutiny. Just like yeah. everyone was saying, like I'm not showing up. I'm not showing up till September. Yeah, because that's what it was. Now it's like halfway through August and they're already starting. Yeah, I think that would get to me. Although I will say, for a couple, for I think three, maybe four years, uh, when I lived in Denver, I was on what's called a year-round schedule. Oh, I didn't so that's realize. nine weeks on. Yeah. So the beginning of the year was, I think, in August. So it's nine weeks on, three weeks off, nine weeks on, five weeks off around December, 
nine weeks on three, nine weeks on five. So your summer vacation was only five weeks. Yeah. Um, but you also have a much longer Christmas vacation and a fall and a spring break, uh, which is kind of nice. But at the same time, that nice big chunk of three months was pretty sweet. You know, I myself, I, hey, I'm going back to school and I don't have to worry about it until the third or fourth week in September. I should look that up. But, yeah. uh, yeah, these All right. kids um, today, you know what I mean? Yeah. Let's, uh, we're supposed to be on a schedule here, so let's uh, okay. pay some bills. All right. So this episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $5.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Currently showing on Mubi, this is very exciting for me, currently showing on Mubi is Nosferatu, Phantom of the Night, Werner Herzog's 1979 remake of the classic silent horror film. In it, Count, or- Count Orlock is played by Klaus Kinski, and I am not sure if anybody has uh, seen this. David, have you seen uh, this version of Nosferatu? Uh, no, I never have, actually. I think I prefer it, actually. Um, hmm. As as nice as it, is, as it is to watch just the old graininess of uh, the Murnau film and just get creeped out by that. Um, I love that one. They definitely... Uh, Herzog was definitely interested in sort of uh, exploring the character of, of Orlock. And, um, and Klaus Kinski, you know, human monster Klaus Kinski, um, finds a real tenderness in the character while still also being, you know, repulsive in a lot of ways because the, the character design, design is still based on, uh, you know, the old, the 1924 it's later than that. I don't. I'm, I think it's later. I'm, I'm losing it with years. I used to be good with years, yeah. but I'm not great anymore. But yeah, I don't know. I'm going to say 28. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it's later than I'm thinking. But anyway, so uh, it's a wonderful film. I really enjoy it, and and I think it's a a nice. It's a nice supplement to um. What are we saying? 22. 22. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, it's a nice supplement to uh to the original. And it's one of those things that when people talk about remakes and, you know, which remakes are potentially better than the original, um, I think this, this movie might actually be better than, than the original, but I never think to bring it up because it feels like I shouldn't even compare the two Hmm. because it's silent versus non-silent. It's not better because it's not silent because it's a sound film. That's not, that's not why it's better. I don't, yeah, I think it's better just from a, from a character standpoint and a story standpoint, but um, but either way, it definitely for me is in the, in that conversation. So that is available at Mubi right now. And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com. That's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. There is also an ad at BattleshipPretension.com. You can also just click through that as well. And I want to tell you about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. Uh, they look fantastic and they sound fantastic, and we're big fans. We use them all the time. Can't stop using our tweakedaudio.com earbuds. Yeah, it's really getting uh, us in trouble with our bosses. <laughs> um, that's actually, I have my tweakedaudio.com earbuds in all, all day at work. Oh, okay. Except for obviously not in meetings. That would be yeah. That would be a problem. But yeah, at my desk. But if I, you really wanted to drown out the people at that meeting, there's only one earbud yeah, you would tweaked, use. Tweaked would do it. Um, and an affordable price, too. A low, low price <laughs> at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use, uh, at checkout, if you use the offer code pretension, you get one-third off 
that already low, low price and no shipping charges. So uh, go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with bite clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. All right, we did this last year for the first time, or I should say I did this. Yes. Um, I, uh, as a dues-paying member of the Association of Moving Image Archivists, um, I attended, they have... Um, Is a, it archivists or archivists? Yeah, maybe, let's say archivists. Okay. For fun. Um, <clears throat> oh, boy. They have, uh, they have uh, two or three yearly events. There's a big conference every year that I just... Um, you know, I can't, I can't do like Comic-Con and film festivals and do this right. year. It's in Pittsburgh. Maybe someday I'll go to the big, uh, EMEA conference. We call it EMEA. Um, and then this year they're also doing a European, uh, the real thing. Uh, that's what this one is called, uh, in Amsterdam, but they do one every August in, at the Academy on the, the Academy building on vine, um, here in Los Angeles called the real thing. Uh, as you might've imagined, it's R E E L. Mm-hmm. Uh, you probably seen that in the title of the episode uh, of this episode anyway. Um, and it is three evenings and two days, um, uh, about, uh, restoration, preservation, uh, archiving and stuff like that. It's, there's a Thursday night reception and movie. They, they screen things that have been recently restored. Um, generally, I, I think all three of these this year were 4k, um, presentations. So they screen, uh, three, you know, Thursday, uh, Friday and Saturday night, there are screenings Friday and Saturday all day. There are presentations. It's a, it's a symposium, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I will start, let's just start with the Thursday night, um, opening screening, mm-hmm. um, which is something that is, uh, already scheduled for a Blu-ray release by Criterion, uh, sometime this fall, I think, uh, it's the one and only film, that Marlon Brando directed one oh, eyed yeah. one eyed Jacks. Yeah. Uh, have you seen it? I have not seen it. I heard it was a very, uh, offbeat type of film, but in a good way, it's somewhat offbeat. I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd say it's very offbeat. Um, it is, you know, it's like 60, 61. I can't remember. Uh, this is what we're doing. You know, we're, yeah. We just don't know years now. 60, 61. Um, so it's in that period. Like I was 22. Damn it. <laughs> like when did the, when did we have ratings? like the MPAA ratings? Uh, mid to late sixties, I think. Yeah. But this is, so it's still like sort of technically under the Hayes code, but Joseph Breen is gone like as of what? 54, 58. That I don't think I've ever actually known. Um, I'm sure we knew when we did our episode on the Hayes code, we knew when Joe, um, so it's, it's in that period where things are like, clearly things have been loosened a little bit, but they're not getting full, like R rated type of type of movies. Um, so Brando's able, able to play a more, he's the star of course, uh, as well as the director. Um, and he's able to play a more, um, uh, I guess what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, a nuanced, uh, character. I was going to say Gray. flawed. Is there a flawed There's element definitely to him? flaws in there are parts, yeah. you know, he, you know, um, like we, we see him, you know, openly just like 
lying consistently okay. um, to women in order to try to get them in, into bed. And it's not played like you can see movies in this time playing it for comedy. That's yes. One Eye Jacks is not a comedy. Um, it maybe has a couple of laughs, but uh, not really. Um, uh, and, and so like, this is clearly supposed to be like, this guy's a kind of a bad dude. You know, he's the, he's a professional bank robber. Um, the story is of the movie, I should say, uh, is that he and Carl Malden and another dude are professional bank robbers in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um, a job goes wrong. Well, the other dude gets shot and killed. Uh, we barely even meet him. It's, you know, five minutes in the movie, he gets killed by the... Played uh, by Timothy Carey. Uh, no, <laughs> that's later. He plays the town drunk uh, ah. in Monterey, California later, where most of the movie takes place in Monterey, California. But um, It's a beautiful place. Um, this is in Mexico. Uh, the it, it, it goes wrong... Um, Brando and so the guy gets killed. Brando and Malden are on the run from the Federales and Malden essentially leaves Brando for dead. And he and Brando ends up getting arrested and spending five years, uh, in a Mexican prison, um, until he, he breaks out, um, joins up with another gang. And I'm forgetting who played, um, the leader of that gang, uh, who want to rob a bank, uh, up in, they want to go, you know, ride for weeks, uh, up from Mexico up to Monterey, California and rob a bank. Um, and Brando wants to go not so much to rob the bank, but because he finds out that Carl Malden has settled down and become the sheriff of this town. So he's going to go back, uh, and, and seek his, seek his revenge. That sounds great. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a cool, it's a cool movie and it is, I mean, it's, it has the feel of an epic. It's two and a half hours. Okay. You know, it takes place you know, there's a lot of writing It takes place over a long, long period of time. You know, there's that jump of five years, but there's yeah. also, there's a part when, um, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but Brando sort of, um, fails or has his mission sort of blow up in his face and he has to go, he goes to a, like a small fishing village for like six weeks and like retrains and like regroups to go back and try uh, at his mission again. So like it is, it does have that epic feel of like there's yeah. different stages of the movie and it takes place over a long period of time. Um, it, so would you say? Because my first thought was oh, um, Ben Johnson plays the, hey, the lead I, of the uh, the other gang. I he's, like him. He's great, of course uh, he is. He's yeah, he's definitely the you know. Brando and Malden are at odds. Uh, Bob Amory, Ben Johnson's character, is the bad guy. Okay, because I was going... That's what I was going to ask, is my first thought when you told me about it was, oh, you don't see you don't see Carl Malden as the villain very often. But well, then it's like, well, an argument could be made that he's not villainous, <clears throat> that he's done something bad, like leaving yeah. someone for dead, like that's a bad thing. Um, but... Uh, and it's like, oh, he's the sheriff, but nobody knows about his evil past. And it's like, well, maybe it's not even that evil. Like, I guess that speaks to the different shades of gray you're talking about. Yeah. Although I, mean, I will say as it goes on, he does become more, more villainous. It okay. becomes more desperate to hold on to what he's okay. uh, built for himself. Um, How is Carl Malden in that type of role? He's great. Okay. He's fantastic. Um, uh, yeah. I, I don't want to give too much away. I'll say, um, Slim Pickens is in it mm. and he plays a real piece of shit. Okay. <laughs> like he's not like the sort of like comic relief or anything like that. Yeah. He's, he basically, so the other, the whole other, cause of course there's a, a, a love story. Um, Carl Malden has married, um, in okay. this town and adopted the, uh, teenage daughter of this woman that he's married. 
Uh, and so when Brando comes into town, he st- strikes up a uh, romance with this uh, young girl. Um, and Slim Pickens, who's one of Carl Mulden's deputies, um, has the hots for this girl and basically decides that he fucking hates Brando because she likes him and <laughs> she likes Brando and not Slim Pickens. And he's just a fucking piece of shit. I feel like I'm cussing a lot, but... Uh, Seems appropriate. Uh, yeah. Um, it is. I mean, I, I do. I like some pickets is great in the role. Um, but, uh, but yeah, get, yeah, get ready for him to be just a real bastard. This sounds really great. Yeah, uh, did it, they it's, give kinda, any... it's a little bit sloppy sure. um, because it was, um, uh, taken away and re-edited. Uh, it, it, it had a weird journey to the screen. Uh, Stanley Kubrick was gonna, was involved in the pre-production was going to direct it. Um, but he never, never got to production with him. Um, and because uh, Brando was producing it, I guess they um, had some differences of agreement uh, or some differences of opinion. Um, and I think Brando ended up bringing in another screenwriter to give it another polish. And then he went and shot it himself. And apparently, no, I know this because there was a, I don't know if this will be on the, um, the movie was introduced by a guy from Universal who, uh, who oversaw the restoration, but he oversaw the restoration with the help of Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. Oh, wow. And so there was a pre-recorded video introduction by Martin Scorsese. That might be on the Blu-ray, or it might have been something he just did for uh, uh, Mia, which would be cool. Um, now, in this but, restoration, is it just like a picture and sound, or is it a restoration to try to get back to, like a no, re-editing? It's not a re-editing, okay? Um, because I don't know where. Um, and Martin Scorsese in his video introduction talks about that. That um, the Marlon Brando's rumored like assembly cut of this movie was between five and five and a half hours long. Um, and apparently like he did things like he, there was a ton of improvisation, which I guess you'd expect um, from yeah. Marlon Brando. And also there were stories of like sh- shots in Monterey that took place on the beach. Brando would make the crew wait for hours for the waves to start looking the way that he wanted the waves to look. Um, so apparently it was going to be the way over budget. Um, and that's part of the reason that the studio took it away yeah. from him and re and recut it. Um, and I've, yeah, I read some things about uh, the, Brando's cut being uh, darker. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. And I wonder if, because like Timothy Carey has a small role and uh, I don't know if I say his name right. Is it Elisha Cook? Elisha uh, Cook. Yeah, 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 I think so. Um, he also has a really small role. So like, so like both of those roles are so small that I wonder if like these were probably supposed to be bigger characters in the yeah. five and a half hour than the version that's. that's nope, nope. It's all Brando. <laughs> yeah. It's just, um, uh, yeah, uh, and the, uh, yeah, it's it's a it's not a perfect movie, um, but it is definitely a movie of interest. And I think when the Criterion Blu-ray comes out, it will not be a uh, uh, it'll be a worthwhile um, purchase. I do want to tell one story that um, the guy from Universal told about the um, the restoration and working with collaborating with Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese. Obviously, mm-hmm. Steven Spiel- Martin Scorsese lives in New York. Mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg is literally in the offices, apparently next door on the universe. Steven Spielberg's uh, offices are on the universe a lot. I think that's a well-known thing. Um, and apparently they're like right next door. So um, there is a time that, <clears throat> so this guy from Universal, he was coordinating like with Scorsese and with Steven Spielberg, but he didn't know if they were talking to each other. So he had Spielberg in the screening room. They're looking at some footage. Um, and like, have you talked to Marty about this? And he was like, Oh, well let me try something. And so he FaceTimes Martin Scorsese <laughs> on his phone, points the picture like at the screen. And he's like, now keep in mind what you're seeing on the screen is a little bit lighter than what I'm actually, what you're seeing on the iPhone screen is a little lighter than what I'm seeing. And the, so like this guy is like watching 
this guy who works Universal is watching Steven Spielberg and Mark Scorsese FaceTime. Uh, what, a, what a strange... <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to say surreal experience that must be. And it gets me, it gets me thinking, I recognize that I can't go off on every uh, tangent that I want to during this. But uh, when you think of... I will some, because I have a natural uh, sense of uh, competition with everybody I know, um, uh-huh. and I, I'm perpetually <laughs> saying, like, okay, am I doing better or worse? And I don't mean, fi- <laughs> I don't mean financially. I mean just, like, as a person, and, like, uh, am I able to do more uh-huh. uh, than this person? The answer is usually no, by the way. Um, and so I sort of project that onto other people, and I, and I also recognize that, you know, if you're an artist, there's probably some level of insecurity in you. Uh-huh. And I realize that, like, if you're Steven Spielberg and Martin Scorsese, you can look at each other and be like, you did your thing. I did mine, but we're about the same, right? Uh Like we came up at the same time. We both can probably say we shaped cinema and cinema needed me and it needed you at the same time. Yeah. All right. I think there's a situation that if we both shot bullets at each other, the bullets would hit themselves, hit each other in midair. Yeah. And they've outstripped in, in many ways their, even their famous contemporaries like Coppola and George Lucas yeah. and Brian De Palma to some extent, like, yeah. um, the, yeah, you can make an argument that they are like the, t- the last two of like that film school yeah. brat crowd to, um, still be holding on to. So, uh, and this is not a judgment of their films in comparison to right. Palma's or Coppola's or right. George Lucas's films. I'm just saying in terms of their place in the culture, yeah. like they're the, uh, the last men standing. Yeah. And like, I, I, I like this idea, this, uh, this, this Western idea that mm-hmm. the two of them are pointing guns at each other. And then in walks Woody Allen and he <laughs> says, well, hang on guys. <laughs> I may not have won best director that many times, but I do have a lot of writing awards to my, uh, to my name. Right. Um, okay. Let's move into, I guess. Okay. This episode will probably be a little bit shorter than we did last year because I missed a lar- large chunk of the Friday, mm-hmm. um, thing. Uh, Either because we were very busy at work and they couldn't spare me. Okay. Or because I got caught up in some sort of office politics that are way above my head and had, no, had nothing to actually do with me. And I couldn't go because of that. I don't actually know what happened. Wow. I do know that I was very busy at work um, for the little more than half day that I worked. So it was worthwhile for me to be there. But I don't entirely know what happened. And I don't want to go <laughs> like explore. Um, That's very strange. But yeah. Um, You're just a pawn, David. Um, so when I, I missed some stuff that I wanted, uh, to see, there was a, uh, presentation on the restoration of, uh, the front page, um, which is a, um, Lewis Milestone movie from 1931. That's a, uh, newspaper comedy, um, mm-hmm. that I have seen. I wrote, if you go onto Battleship Retention, I wrote, uh, I watched and wrote a review of the Blu-ray, um, like a year ago. Uh, I think this is, this would be the same restoration, uh, that they're talking about. Uh, and I liked it. Um, so I'm said that I missed the uh the presentation on that. And then there was also um there was a one thing called a UHD HDR primer that's uh ultra high def high dynamic range okay. primer. Uh I wish I would have seen that that would have been interesting. Um and then there was a thing on that I missed again uh presented by Lee Klein of the Criterion Collection hmm. on the restoration of McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Nice. So I'm sorry that I missed uh that one. Uh and some more stuff. And then I'll, I'll, the two all right, I'm gonna. I'll make mention of some of the more technical ones, um, but I know they won't be of interest uh, to you, and I know they won't be of interest to uh, most of our listeners. Um, so, 
the the first panel I saw was uh, called automated archival image comparison using advanced algorithms, um, which is it, it actually was quite interesting about the idea of like uh, um, an archive and a collector saying uh, we have you know oh I have this movie in archive and the collector's like I have this movie in my collection but how do they know you know there's different versions how do they know right. they're the same version well you can run them side by side and spend literally days and hours uh, doing them or you can run them through a program they've written that will like recognize, uh, differences. Um, and it even like they showed how it's even caught like, um, some, some prints would have like spelling errors in the end credits. And it's like, because that's part of the image it could catch like, Hey, there's a difference here. And like the machine doesn't know, it just knows there's a difference in the image. You look at it and you go like, oh, they left the E out of that lady's name or whatever in yeah. the credits. Um, anyway, that was that was pretty interesting. But I'm not going to go into too much detail on that. The thing that uh, from Friday that I saw that uh, will be of interest, I think, to a lot of listeners is another Criterion Collection uh, presentation. Uh, Ryan Hullings from the Criterion Collection um, talking about restoring audio for rock documentaries and rock movies. Oh. Specifically, Hard Day's Night, Don't Look Back, and Quadrophenia. Um, and that was super, super interesting. Um, uh, it, one of the more interesting things he, he did was, uh, he found out, you know, he's doing, doing don't look back with DA Penny Baker. Um, and he, uh, finds out that in like the early eighties, a sort of fake up conversion to stereo. Cause when we was recorded in mono, um, and often he talked about just like, these scenes in Don't Look Back were recorded so like um, on the fly gorilla style that it's literally just one mic in the middle of the room hoping to catch what it can, you know. Um, and it was sort of upconverted to a stereo the DA Pennebaker didn't like, and they didn't. Ha- they had very few um, mono masters. They ended up finding uh, finding uh, a print master that they could use, uh, and that's great. Um, but what he put together, which is uh, really awesome, is one clip of. Um, uh, I think he's playing uh, Don't Think Twice It's All Right um, or It Ain't Me Babe. I can't remember, but it's mm-hmm. uh, Bob Dylan playing. And in the clip, he starts it with the fake stereo and then sort of scans it into oh, nice. the mono. Um, and so you listen to the fake stereo and it's like, I'm not that big an audiophile, so yeah. it sounds all right to me. You know, I wouldn't, if, if I saw a movie that was projected yeah. that way, I wouldn't have complaints. Yeah, you wouldn't think twice. <laughs> That's <laughs> I mean, all right. That's all right. Um, <laughs> But no, then you know it was all right. Was when it when it came into the mono, and it suddenly became like uh, it, it just so much clearer. Yeah. You know, like I I think that's I guess I understand when when things like stereo or five point one or whatever, like well, that's a selling point, so you make a version, like yeah. right. But there's something to be said for the way that it was made is the way that it's yeah. always going to be best yeah. in, in a way, you know? Um, and it was, it was so, it was so night and day the way that the song sounded, um, and the way that the vocals were more understandable yeah. and everything, uh, when it came into mono, that was a really cool, um, cool thing. Uh, I can't spend forever on this. There were a ton of great stories. The other one that I think Tyler, because you are like me, I think you will find this very interesting. Okay. I'll do my best. Um, so there's a there's the beginning of a hard day's night. <clears throat> Both the beginning of the movie and the beginning of the song, a hard day's night, mm-hmm. are this one chord. Dun, yeah, you know. And so the guy uh, was Ryan Hollings um, from Criterion is talking about 
how he was listening to it and he realized at the end just the fade out just before the rest of the band comes in and the and the vocals come in there was some like distortion on the recording and he was like oh i can fix that no problem but then he realized every source he had had the same distortion which meant that little bit of distortion in the yeah. audio had been present on a hard day's night from the beginning so he decided to leave it in mm-hmm. but this is to me, if Hard Day's Night were made now and that were caught a week later, it would be fixed like that. Yes. So how long does a quote-unquote mistake become a part of uh, a movie before it, like, before it's no longer a mistake, before it's part of the text? I find that, I find that, that so interesting. Well, I definitely can't give you a, a, a number of decades or anything like that, but it's a good question because there are some people... Um, I ha- I've had this thought about uh, Jaws that... So there's the, if you look at jo- the, the shark's mouth on the, on the cheeks or whatever you want to uh-huh. call them, um, you know, there's like this weird little like curve that's clearly, it's there to hide the hinge, um, oh, okay. of the, of the, the me- mechanism. Um, and, but what it winds up looking is that this shark just kind of has jowls. Um, but it still looks fake and you feel, and you feel like, well, you know what they should do is just go in and just take those out, uh, digitally, oh, right. you know, no problem. And then you come to find out that there are people that thought, um, that they find that endearing, that they love that. Yeah. Now I don't have a problem with it. You know, you just kind of get used to it, but, uh, but there are people for whom it's like, no, that's part of the shark's personality. And it's just like, yeah, but that, what it was a practical decision, not an artistic one. Um, it was Steven Spielberg saying, is this the best we're going to get? All right, fine. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that's an instance of not, not necessarily a mistake, but a limitation that w- again, were they to do it today, they would, they would make it look smooth and as seamless as they could. Uh, but it might lose a little bit of, for lack of a better term, character. Um, and I don't mean the character of the shark. I mean, just like, you know, when something's been, uh, scraped a few too many times or something like that. And now I'm just like, ah, oh, it's been through some stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that's, it brings up a, an interesting question. I think I was talking to, uh, uh, Kyle Anderson about this, about old doctor who episodes where mm-hmm. the special effects weren't that great. And in some cases they've actually gone back in and made them better, uh, digitally. And I asked like, D- yeah. what did the fans think of that? And he said, well, some of them are happy with it. Some of them think, no, you have to leave it exactly as it is. Like, yes, but how it is is really hokey and distracting. Um, yeah, I want to say that, like, they did that with maybe Star Trek The Next Generation. Because oh, okay. it was like, I think that was a show that was shot on film, but the visual effects were done in video. So when they went oh, to okay. make HD versions, the video effects looked, or the visual effects looked particularly terrible. Yeah. So I think they redid some of them. People who are bigger... Uh, Star Trek TNG fans can correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm thinking of a different series altogether, but I feel like there was something they, they did that. But I feel like that is a little, for me, a little bit more for, forgivable because they realized because it happened as a result of we're upgrading this thing and in our upgrade in, which is to say it was never meant to be seen like this. It was never meant to be seen oh, right, this right. crystal clear. And now, Oh, those visual effects don't look that great. So if we're already going to be showing it in a way that was not, not meant to be seen, right. Um, might as well do this as well. We might as well update 
yeah, an argument could be made that there's there's like an upgrade uh-huh. and an update. And I feel like that might be an instance of updating. But then you get to the question of whose decision is that? Like, who owns it? Yeah, you I know? know. That's something I actually talked about. The director about. of that particular um, episode? Somehow I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, that's actually um, something in uh, Quadrophenia. He was talking about, like, uh, no, I can't remember who it was. It wasn't Pete Townsend because he talked about Pete Townsend not showing up when he was supposed to for the uh, <laughs> the, the session. But someone, um, basically, when they're doing the restoration like saying, oh, let's do this, which was not a restoration. It was a new tweak. Yeah. But this is also, this is the guy whose movie this is. So it's not Criterion's place to say no at that point. Um, That's a very interesting conversation. Um, And yeah, that came up. Uh, There are stories, because I go with people from my work. um, And so there are stories that come up and a lot of them I can't tell because I don't talk about where I work and I can't talk about specific movies but that yeah that um specific thing uh reminded uh some people i work with of uh other situations mm. uh that had happened where it's like we're a director or cinematographer or whatever uh in in doing a restoration you know suggests some sort of uh color grading thing that is like that's not how the movie looked initially. let me think let me think like, if i can think of any uh big examples of that in the last uh 15 years or so mm. Well, there is that uh, the aforementioned George Lucas, uh-huh. yeah. who, and that brings up a whole a whole mess of things that uh, you know that the movie The People versus George Lucas uh, covers better than we ever okay. could. Um, yeah. Uh, Sorry, we got distracted there. Yeah, and I want to get on to um, Friday Night's movie, the second movie, and this will be this one. There'll, there'll be some conversation here because you've seen this movie more than oh, once. Oh, good. Um, although. It's called Beat the Devil. Okay. You've seen it, but you, I can almost guarantee, have not seen the version that I saw. Okay. Um, apparently, uh, very few people have. Uh, Beat the Devil was a U.S. and European co-production. Yeah. Uh, the U.S. cut is censored and edited, uh, not only edited down, but also like it, some stuff's in a different order. Hmm. Um, uh, the person introducing the film went to... Uh, step by step about all the weird, weird stuff. Like sometimes it's really weird what they cut. Like sometimes it's like, Oh, Gina Lola Bridget is like, uh, there's too much cleavage here. So they like cut, ended a scene early before she like, oh. leans over the bed. And this is the version you've seen. The, um, I, so I saw the, the film detective was a film detective. Yeah. And so, uh, uh, yeah. Um, uh, so what basically if I'm, if I'm, if I'm to understand, um, the if you've seen beat the devil in a repertory like screening there's a chance you've seen the original um cut but if you've seen it on home video especially in the u.s um it's the original cut has never been put on uh home video in any format interesting um, it, I, i'm sure it will be now that they've restored yeah, it yeah. And it looked it looked beautiful it's so such a fantastic uh yeah. restoration which is good because <laughs> the movie itself it's not that great. Um, I, I agree with you. Which is, uh, it's funny because I remembered you watching this movie when we lived together in college and I thought you liked it. Uh, here's the thing. I start, I don't know if I ever actually finished it until oh, okay. I had to review the Blu-ray. Yes. Cause um, I went back and I, I read your Blu-ray review this week. Yeah. I know we were going to talk about it. I was like, Oh, thank God. We won't be arguing because it kind of feels the same way I yeah. do with this movie, but there's still good in it. That's oh, the thing. This is Robert Morley is like an American hero. He's British, but he's, I love him. Here's, Here's what I was. Here's what I would compare it to. Beat the Devil. It's a John, for those who don't. Let me tell the story. It's a John Huston film. Uh, I shouldn't. 
I shouldn't even try to tell the story because it doesn't actually really make sense or a, or, or slash, um, it's not actually that important to the movie, what the story yeah. is, but it's basically a bunch of people, some con men and some, um, uh, I don't know, uh, British, uh, social climber striver yeah. types are stranded in a small Italian port town because they're, they're all headed to Africa for different reasons, but the, um, ship is delayed because of a broken pump or whatever. Yeah. So most of the movie is just them lounging around the sport, this, uh, this port town getting into each other's business and then, um, uh, basically having affairs with each other's spouses. Yeah. Uh, the main two couples, it's Humphrey Bogart and Gina Lola Brigida are a married couple. And then I forget his name, the British guy and Jennifer Jones. Yeah. I don't recall. Um, are a married couple and, Bogart and Jones have an affair and yeah. Lola Brigida and the British guy whose name I forget, um, who's great in the movie, but I can't remember him. Um, they have an affair. Uh, but meanwhile, there's Bogart's like three, um, four really, uh, cohorts who are all criminals and all from yeah. different countries. Yeah. You've got Peter Lorre, who's a uh, German from Chile. Yeah. You've got, uh, Robert Morley. Uh, and then you've got the tall, Italian guy. Yeah. And you've got the Nazi. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a lot of funny here and it's, yeah. it's not a straight up comedy, but it is, it is kind of speaking of the tall Italian guy who has, who doesn't have many lines in the movie, but there's a great scene where something like sort of crazy and shocking happens. And then John Houston, who directs pushes in on that guy's face and he just says, I'm going to go upstairs and read my Bible. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's so many weird, weird, funny lines. Jennifer yeah. Jones's performance is um, completely unhinged and I kind of love it. Yeah. Um, I, I, and so I'll go back to my initial point. <clears throat> the comparison I would make beat the devil is kind of like the last two David O. Russell films that I didn't really like okay. American hustle and joy. Sure. Both of those movies I don't think are very good. But also, there's no point in either one of those movies that I'm bored when I'm watching what I'm watching. Right. It's just that it feels like in those movies, David O. Russell is choosing whatever take he found the most entertaining and not necessarily the one that's best for the movie as yeah. a whole. And that's kind of what Beat the Devil feels like. It seems like they had a lot of fun making it. And John Huston probably had a lot of fun putting it together. Yeah. Um, but it also feels like the movie, I'm not sure how long this version is. Um, it's because uh, it's slightly longer than the one that's listed on, I, on IMDb, I think at 89 minutes. Um, but it, it, it's the kind of movie that feels like it almost could have stopped after any scene. And you'd have been like, I guess that was the movie. Yeah. That is kind of how it ends. It ends yeah. rather abruptly. It's like somebody took a theater book for actors with just, it's just a compilation, just various scenes. And then just shot that as one movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's definitely a patchwork quality to it where, I de- there are individual scenes or aspects that I love, but when you add them all together, it's like, oh, this is definitely less than the sum yeah. of its parts. Um, you, you talked, I can't remember what your movie you were referencing earlier about, um, oh, Nasferatu, like um, the idea of a remake being better. I could see someone making a really awesome remake yeah. of Beat the Devil that's yeah. just like this hangout movie that's also a uh, pointless crime caper like a the Coens are good at. Yeah. Um, and also a dark comedy. Like it's funny, but there's darkness in it as well. You know, yeah. there's, um, murder and there's more than one attempted murder. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, sort of a, uh, I, I don't think that they were trying to make reference to this or anything, but, uh, uh, burn after reading, I feel like is, is a good example of this where it's just, 
it's just a mess in a lot of ways. Yeah. But there are individual scenes and individual aspects to the film that I think are amazing, yeah. uh, including the way it ends. Um, but yeah, and when I think of Beat the Devil, I think of really loving Robert Morley, and then Peter Lorre has a couple good scenes. But uh, and I think of the scene where Morley and Bogart, and then I don't remember one of the other guys. Uh-huh. They're trying to get their car started, or it's it's oh, it's the 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 driver because it's Bogart's car. Right. But he has a chauffeur. chauffeur. Yes. And so it breaks down. And so they're like, okay, let's push it and get it started. And then it gets started and it just goes and it just goes off a cliff. (laughs) And the three of them are just standing there. And you don't often see that aspect of Humphrey Bogart where he's befuddled. (laughs) And just the three of them are just like looking and squinting, like trying to figure out. Like, they know what just happened, uh-huh. but they're trying to figure out, like, how did that just happen? We're not dumb people. Yeah, um, yeah. that scene is, is really great, and uh, but yeah, the movie Bo- itself doesn't really add up. Um, Bogart's funny. There's not a lot of movies that he's funny in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't think that means he isn't funny, because I've seen him be funny before. Um, there's a part when they're all under arrest. Mm-hmm. And then there's a beat of silence and then Bogart just runs out the door. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You might be talking, although that's the thing, like I was going to say, you might be talking me into liking this movie, but I didn't see the version you did. So maybe there are more elements, but but you're talking about the stuff that I've seen. uh, Yeah. um, Yeah. And I don't think there's that from what I understand. It's not, there's a couple scenes that are longer because they were cut either because Gina Lola Bridges blouse was too low or because there was just too much, you know, the, um, the infidelity I think is made more blatant right. in, in this version. So I think there's a couple scenes that are longer and there are scenes that are in different orders, but I would, I would be surprised if the version I saw is more than a couple minutes longer than the version okay. you saw. It's just a little different. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, it's mostly the same. Um, and yeah, to, to repeat my point, uh, that I made about the David Russell movies. Um, there's no point in, there's nothing about it. That's boring. Yeah. Um, it's just, it feels like when it's over, it's like, I guess that's yeah. what that was. <laughs> like, yeah. I guess I just did that. I watched that movie yeah. and, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It's, I'll, I'll bring up burn after reading again. It's JK Simmons saying like, all right, so what did we learn? Uh, don't do it again, I guess. I don't know what the fuck we did. <laughs> yeah. And it kind of has that quality to it. Yeah. It feels very, it's a very slight film in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, okay. So what do we got next? All right. Uh, let's move on to Saturday's presentations. Um, this one has nothing to do with cinema, but I'll bring it up because it's fascinating. Okay. Um, because these are moving image archivists. Right. So this uh, includes any kind of moving image that's recording. And so they had a whole presentation on body worn cameras and other police, um, video such as, uh, interrogation rooms and dash cams and uh, all kinds of stuff. And the way, you know, there's more and more of that in existence now. How do you archive it? And how do you archive something that unlike another library, it has a whole other mess of tangles, yeah. entanglements, um, such as how do you archive something when chain of custody is so important, you know? Um, uh, how do you archive something that is sensitive material but is um, technically owned by the public? Most yeah. places uh, uh, in the country consider um, police, you know, police-originating surveillance video. Yeah. Um, as being public owned. But then also there's things that come into evidence like 
you know, security cameras from a convenience store or bystander cell phone footage that become evidence. And like, because it's evidence, it's part of the archive, but it's the ownership obviously is different. Yeah. Um, there were some really fascinating questions, uh, and then it got beyond archiving into some, um, more interesting, uh, questions about body warm camera, body worn cameras. Uh, in particular, they had, it wasn't just, they had an archivist from UCLA. Um, Snowden Becker is her name. I don't know if you know uh, Mm -hmm. her. Um, but then they also had um, a guy from the Norman, Oklahoma Police Department who is in charge of all of their uh, their footage. Um, and so he was uh, he was very interesting because he walks up looking very much like a cop, like yeah. short cropped hair, polo shirt, super built. But he's there just to talk about like hard drives and stuff. <laughs> uh, it was really interesting. But then when they got into more of the the rights things, because um, uh, talk about like I, I think a lot of people in my position are all for body worn cameras and for that sort of, um, transparency and accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, but something you have to think about is that, um, policemen are citizens as well and also have rights, yeah. uh, when it comes to their privacy. And so how do you decide like, you know, what, uh, should be recorded and what shouldn't be recorded, what should be stored or what should be deleted if it's, you know, if it's including someone's, you know, lunch break or bathroom break or God forbid or whatever, you know, um, some really fascinating questions about the, um, the legal and philosophical, uh, issues behind police surveillance and archiving it. That's, it's fascinating in its own way. I think the the thing that is fascinating, most fascinating to me is just like, yeah, this is part of the conversation you would have at this conference, but it's, it's <laughs> not an art. It's not an artistic conversation. It's actually in many ways more, yeah. Yeah, vital and certainly relevant these days. Uh, and then we went from that into this couldn't have been more of a 180, a very fun one. So some of these are like that. The, like that one is more about ideas, about looking mm-hmm. forward to the future, right? Yeah. Some of these, um, like the um, image comparison thing I briefly mentioned, are about like, here's the latest developments we have made. This is an update on something we want to show. All of right. you were presenting are our findings or our new technology. And then some of them are just for fun. I think last, uh, I mean, they're, they are these people's passions, but I think last year I talked about the, um, the, um, television, uh, presentation of the first day of Disneyland. The oh yes, Disneyland yes. Opened. Um, so this one is about, it's called the history of TV's first music videos, the Snader telescriptions, which is this guy, Lou Snader in the late forties and early fifties, um, you know, we think of music videos as not existing until much later than that. Yeah, the eighties. Uh, yeah, and he did a, a whole back, like a whole uh, history, a sort of reverse history of music videos leading up to uh, his presentation, talking about like, okay, the eighties, but before that, there were um, things that were sent uh, for promotional purposes that were made, and then before that, there were pre-recorded performances that had a, uh, you know, uh, artistic embellishments, and like mm-hmm. he traces it all, all the way back to like. Um, a Tony Bennett thing in 1956 or whatever, like Tony Bennett, apparently in his, one of his memoirs does claim to have invented the music video, but he's, but the, this guy, the, the presenter, um, Jason wall, um, is his name, uh, was like, no, Lou Snader more or less invented the music video, which is that he would, and he also in a way invented the three camera shoot, which we associate with Desi Lou and sitcoms. Yeah. But this is before that. Uh, and he knew, Desi Arnaz, and it's, so there's uh, some thinking that maybe Desi Arnaz was 
um, motivated or inspired by yeah. hallucinators telescriptions, what they were called. He would just, um, have, a, an artist or a band come in. They do make a little set, uh, do a three camera setup and they'd perform the song live. And then he'd package these together and sell them as afternoon TV shows the, for housewives. The idea being that most television aimed at housewives would pre- uh, prevent housewives from doing their housework while it was on. But music, she could be up and dusting yeah. and, you know, preparing the roast or whatever, yeah. you know, um, uh, while there's music on. <laughs> this was the, this is apparently the idea behind this being like midday housewife centered yeah. uh, television. But he made uh, something like 754 of these oh, wow. things over a few years. Um, some of them are in color uh, and, um, only the last, uh, uh, I'm not sure how many, but uh, most of them were black and white, but there are some, uh, that were done, um, color 60 millimeter. Um, and he would just have an artist come in and they'd knock out, like, these are the songs you're going to do. And so he would be doing, you know, um, 10 of these a day, you know, yeah. and, and just putting together these, these packages. There are, um, uh, I don't know if it's if he said it's out of print or not, but PBS put out like a four disc DVD set um, uh, of a bunch of these, uh, like ten or twelve years ago. Would there something. be artists that we know um, of? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, we we saw. Um, uh, let me see. I, I, I took notes on this because it was uh, fascinating. Um, so these were. Uh, let me see what notes I took. Uh, the first one he ever did was Lionel Hampton. These were all. These weren't done like we think of music videos. They're lip syncing to recordings, but right. no, these were record. They were playing, uh, live. Um, Oh, the telescription show. He showed how through a different t- change. It like had one host and then it had a different host and then it changed names to, uh, bandstand and then it had a different oh, okay. host. And essentially the telescription show over a couple of iteration oh, iterations right. became American bandstand. Okay. Um, which is really interesting. Um, but, uh, I'm trying to remember which ones, um, he showed us four in full projected from 16 millimeter. I think if I remember correctly, uh, two of them were, um, people I'd heard of Peggy Lee and Sarah Vaughn. Okay. Uh, and then there was one that I can't remember the name of them. It was, uh, a song that would in today's vernacular be described as problematic. Okay. <laughs> it's called never Under- underestimate the power of a woman. And it's, uh, all right. <laughs> it's basically an entire song that's meant to be like kind of novelty, like kind of funny, but sure. like basically watch out men, women have all the power. And uh, if you turn your back on them, uh, they'll take advantage of you and you'll always lose arguments and like, but it's kind of funny. I don't know. But then the other one he showed, which I now I need to spend some time really looking up this guy. Okay. Um, a guy named Corla Pandit. It's not his real name. You don't say, um, but that's how he presented himself. And apparently he was on TV a lot in the early fifties in Los Angeles. He was on local TV and he would play, he basically had an organ and a piano and he would play them both going back and forth and playing both at the same time and play these mm-hmm. songs. He never spoke. He wore a turban, um, because he was supposed to be from India. Yeah. And he just, I even mean, he was kind of like a minor heartthrob cause he would just like stare at the camera with like a slight smile on his Ooh. face while, while playing. Um, but it turns out he wasn't, um, Indian. He was a uh, mixed race, black, uh, I think black father, white mother, maybe the other way around and from Missouri. Uh, and I can't remember what his real name is. Um, the, the guy, the guy said, but, uh, 
I now need to I need to set aside a chunk of time to really find out more about Corla Pandit because I'm super super interested in this. Housewives guy. weren't going to be vacuuming when he was on. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right. Uh, this next. Okay. So last year I talked about how there were a lot of things about color and specifically, um, I mean, there was color in general, but there was two strip Technicolor specifically. So I'm not sure how intentional this one, but this one had, this was, it had a lot of things about sound. I talked about the sound restoration, but also what became a theme very much on this, uh, Saturday, the second day was the idea of old silent, films and newsreels or any kind of moving um moving image um from a long long time ago um before there was a standardized frame rate how do you replicate how it's supposed to look hmm. do you know what i mean yeah yeah because that's hard to define so uh, anyway i'll start real uh, briefly i'll mention um this came up. This came up only briefly in this in this in this uh, presentation on the restoration and preservation of the films of Louis Deluc, who is a um, uh, French uh, was a French silent filmmaker, but was also um, some uh, apparently have referred to him as the first ever film critic. Hmm. Um, he was a film critic first, and then uh, became um, uh, a filmmaker. And they showed some uh, some some clips. Um, with a live piano presentation okay. uh, or accompaniment. It was fun. We had that actually for, there were a lot of silent films on the second day or not full films, but a lot of clips from silent films. And a lot of them were accompanied by, um, a, a pianist, which, okay. was, which is fun. Um, uh, and they, it, she also, the woman from, uh, Eclair is the name of the studio, uh, or the company or whatever in France that uh, is doing the restorations. Uh, and she talked about, um, to what extent do you stabilize and deflicker something when that's, you know, that's how it was seen. It was seen, yeah. you know, uh, a little more flickery and, and, and jumpy. Um, so that was the Louis de Luc one, but that'll get us into, um, speed in the real world, factual representation of pre-sound era documentary and newsreels. And this one was fantastic. Fascinating. Um, because, uh, we just learned a lot of stuff about, about how these movies were made and how they were projected in a pre-sound um, era and pre-standardized um, film rate, you know, rate mm-hmm. of, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, whatever, frames per second uh, rate or whatever. Um, so there were movies, uh, silent movie houses would program an entire day's worth of movies and to get more money, they yeah. would program more more stuff than could technically fit in the day. And so the projectionist would project the movies faster. <laughs> That's just something that would happen in silent movies. Uh, like, um, so when you're, when you're getting into this issue of how was this originally experienced? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, there was no standardization there. So they tried to look at, they showed clips. <clears throat> they focused on newsreel, um, documentary footage specifically from different Olympics. Uh, that they had um, uh, restored and also tried to make look normal in terms of the sense yeah. of movement. And this stuff, they did such a fascinating job. I'm trying to remember who, uh, the guy's name is Adrian Wood. I'm trying to remember where he was, where he was from. Oh, he showed, uh, I'm glad he, this is in the notes here because he, uh, 
there's a clip uh, or a, a quote from President Woodrow Wilson who said, I have often seen myself in motion pictures and the sight has made me very sad. I have wondered if I do walk like an animated jumping jack or move around <laughs> with such extreme rapidity as I appear to appear to, um, which is, which is very funny. Um, so anyway, this footage from 1912, the 1912 Olympics, uh, in, um, Sweden, I can't remember what city, um, Stockholm, maybe. Sure. It's, it looks so beautiful. It looked yeah. uh, so pristine. And also it, because they had done this, these processes, um, they're very painstaking. Yeah. It looked like, not like we're used to seeing old movies like that. Look, they weren't jumpy. It looked like people just, just talking. Um, and they're doing this, uh, you know, duplicating frames where they need to, or, 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 or whatever. <clears throat> and, um, uh, were you going to say something? Yeah, there's. Uh, so you don't spend a great deal of time on Facebook, uh, but you do see these things shared uh, a lot. Uh, like, here's a collection of old time photographs that have been colored. Uh, they, you know, they're usually a sepia tone or black and white, but now they are. They've been colored, but they've been very painstakingly colored uh-huh. so that it doesn't look like you know, like the Turner exactly. colorization. Yeah, and. You look at these where they and, wouldn't do the inside of the mouths. Have you ever watched any of those? Like I watched It's a Wonderful Life colorized. Yeah, and so <laughs> it's terrifying because when they talk, they just have this <laughs> black hole in yeah. the middle of their face. Just everybody had mouth cancer back <laughs> yeah. then, and uh, so. Um, but you look at these photos, and there there definitely is, especially when it's like, hey, here's a bunch of guys from you know, just a bunch of soldiers from world war one. Yeah. Uh, just relaxing or even the civil war in some cases. Yeah. And the, the photos are cleaned up and then they are color and uh, they're colorized. And there, there definitely is an element of remove. When you see something that's black and white, you see something that's grainy, you see that, that speed that of footage. Yeah. And when you take that away, you're like, Oh, right. They, these were people. These were actual people. This is yeah. not like, uh, you just, I don't know. I, I, for, for some reason I just kind of, even, even I, who I love silent film and all that sort of thing, even I have sort of a disconnect, yeah. uh, with old photos and that sort of thing just because, well, I don't live in a black and white world. Um, yeah. and I know how I move and I know how yeah. modern movies move and those are real people and I, I know who they are. But then suddenly, especially when you're looking at war photos and you realize like, because oddly enough, the black and white, and this might just be me, the black and white makes these guys look older. Mm-hmm. you see them colorized and you're like, holy shit. No, yeah, they were, these are guys 18, that are like 18, 19. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it really is kind of astounding when that happens. Well, it also helps this, that these were restored. My, my, my boss pointed out that there's one part where the, the King walks up and one guy doffs his cap. He's mm-hmm. his top hat. It's 1912. He's wearing a top yeah. hat and you can see, Oh, this guy's been wearing his hat all day. You can see the line in oh, his yeah. hair where his top hat had been like resting, wow. uh, all day. It's fascinating. They also talked about um, the Olympics were particularly helpful in looking at like how fast should this be going because they can literally look at, okay, here's the race. Let's check the records. This guy ran the race in 10.6 seconds. So it should take 10.6 seconds for this guy to get from here to there. And they could use that as a, as a reference point, which is uh, really interesting. Is there a way to find any of this? I don't know. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just been archived. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where it'll be, where it'll be, uh, viewable. Okay. Um, cause that would be fascinating to me. Okay. Uh, there's also, uh, there's also this guy who very painstakingly 
took old photos of like New York City from the 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 teens, the nineteen teens, and uh, and he doesn't colorize them, but he animates them, uh, and makes them slightly three dimensional. Mm-hmm. You know, and it doesn't, and he does it in a way that's very subtle, and. St- and suddenly these old photos of an old, of New York forever ago mm-hmm. uh, seems very vibrant and very real. And it's just like, oh, I guess I know what it was like sort of to just stand on a street corner and look at this, you know. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I, I have an appreciation for that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, all right. I'll, I won't go too much into the next one because it's very technical, although I found it very interesting. It was a... Uh, um, Pro Tools session and immersive audio archiving workflows and challenges. And it's basically, it was kind of a, um, in a lot of ways for me, given what I do at my job, like it was not new information, but it was a really helpful sort of overview of like, here's what happens to the sound of a movie once it's like, like post theatrically for post production, yeah. for archiving and also for um, uh, other being being used for other purposes, especially other countries that need dubbed audio or whatever. Here's the breakdown of what happens um, to different pieces of audio. Uh, and the interesting thing, a lot of it was interesting, but one of the things um, that the guy talked about was that um, these, you know, we talked about mono versus stereo. Like there was a time that like 5.1 was seen as like, uh, that's a niche, that's a luxury thing. You know, we'll do that as an afterthought. And then mm-hmm. 5.1 kind of became, the standard that's what yeah. things do and so increasingly now that's what's um happening in terms of going back before post-production going back to the mixing of movies what's happening with dolby atmos do you know um so okay here's a real quick description okay 5.1 and this is how this guy described it which is a, a good way of uh, describing it i have i obviously knew all this but he described it obviously yes um, thank you uh, no, I did. But anyway, um, thank you for when you say dumbing it down <laughs> as you talk to me and the listener. Uh, yeah. When you say 5.1, each of those, that number it's five plus one refers to a speaker. So when you're mixing it, you're saying you're breaking it up into six parts and saying, this is goes in the, you know, um, center and this goes left and this goes left stereo or okay. like it goes into, whereas, um, Atmos is based on, I know I can't remember the, the the term i guess i didn't know this as well as i as i could but it's like it's like regions where you're mapping it out and you're saying okay this object of sound yeah belongs in this region and so a a theater or a, eventually a home entertainment system that's set up for atmos um the idea is that it has speakers along all on both walls and the back right. and an array of speakers on the ceiling okay um and some of these have scored you know 60 something speakers and some of them have uh, a dozen or so but it doesn't matter it's not based on the number of speakers it's based on sort of geography yeah so once this atmos file or whatever knows what the setup is it will direct the speed the the objects of sound to the speakers that correlate best with the uh area or region that of the theater that they're supposed to come from. Um, it's really interesting. Um, and when you see a movie that's done right, uh, in Atmos, um, I think the first, I think brave was the first, um, uh, what year was brave? 2012, 2013, 2012, right? Uh, gosh, now I don't remember. I think it was 12 or 13. Yeah. Um, was the first feature that completely done in Atmos. Um, I don't know. It was the first one I saw, but I know, 
Um, the best at most feed, uh, well, I saw life of Pi in the big screen mm-hmm. room on Fox, which is all uh, on the Fox lot, which is all uh, decked out in Dolby. And it was astounding. It was, yeah. uh, it, it's, um, life of Pi was one of my favorite theater going experiences because of that, because it's one of the best uses of 3d maybe, uh, in the modern era of 3d, I think. Um, there are a few others that are great. I'd but, say uh, that's up there. Yeah. Um, uh, so anyway, that's that's becoming the norm now, and so uh, obviously, archiving and stuff mm-hmm. is going to have to uh, adapt to these different types of files. We've so done we've never done an episode about three D, haven't we? I don't think oh, so. Okay, we should at some point. I think it's worth discussing. Certainly, we at should this do. Point. And the one did I? Oh, I'm gonna have this thing again. Did I say this on mic last week or off mic? Okay, give me a try. Um, that we should do an episode about songs that we um i've talked so much that my vocabulary is gone okay associate with scenes from movies that like i think that was on mike that was on mike i think so but i'm not sure i feel like i felt like it wasn't but it could have been because i know i had the thought on mike because of something that we said on the episode okay but i feel like i might have brought it up after but yeah, that's an episode we should do, like yeah. songs that are inextricable. Like if you hear yeah. this playing at a bowling alley or whatever, your mind's immediately going to go to that scene from the movie. Yeah, you know the one I mean? that I threw out was Stuck in the Middle with You with right, uh, Steelers Wheel. Reservoir yeah. Dogs. Um, yeah, and I've certainly got like, um, I can't hear Lust for Life without thinking of the opening of Train Spotting. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's, yeah, it's as much part of the movie as, yeah. uh, as any other to me. And like the other day I was at a bowling alley and then that really creepy piano music came on and i was like oh this is for my eyes wide shut i can't <laughs> right. i can't enjoy this now <laughs> well if you were bowling alley was it the remix <laughs> yeah, oh right that's what it was uh skrillex got all up on that track <laughs> um okay and then so i kind of this this next one will be kind of easy because it was uh it's called the speed of cinema 3 digital product digital projection of archival films and it kind of is the same thing i was talking about about yeah. different ways of making uh you know projecting uh, uh films that were shot in these non-standard mm-hmm. uh frame rates um so it's kind of the same thing there wasn't much more here um this guy literally i guess he must have given this presentation before because he went up to the podium introduced himself then he introduced the video and the video was him giving a presentation somewhere else <laughs> and then they would cut to clips that like at least the clips weren't like picture yeah. picture or whatever the clips were 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 you know um real or whatever he's done this but, for like six years yeah. and each time it gets um, and the guy had a very back. um like uh uh richard attenborough type of uh, oh, nice. uh british uh voice um but it wasn't so it was enjoyable and there was more silent uh, films with live piano accompaniment. That was yeah. fantastic. Um, but it wasn't much more. They, he talked about the idea of in a digital um, uh, realm sort of inventing flicker and like inserting frames of black so that the picture flickers hmm. like it's supposed to. Um, it, that, that was, that was kind of interesting, That's odd. but uh then, but this guy was kind of all over the place because he also he started with a clip of the opening of Oklahoma, which was recently restored, which has nothing right. to do with what he was talking about. But um, this, I will say that it looked beautiful, of course. Um, and then he ended with a really fascinating thing that had nothing to do with anything we talk about, um, which is about um, photo players, which were um, like for cheap silent movie theaters these player organs essentially yeah where you'd have um 
it wouldn't necessarily, I don't know. I, I got the impression it didn't necessarily come with like, here's the music that goes with this movie. You get the photo player and you get different roles of, uh, player piano things yeah. and whichever fit the type of movie you were showing the most, that's what they would do with the thing. So you didn't have to have an organist or anything. Yeah. It was just an organ built into the thing. Um, and, uh, you'd feed in these player things. Uh, and there's only two of them left in the entire world. Hmm. Um, there was, this is heartbreaking. Um, a guy, uh, who, um, well, there's a church and I can't remember where he said it was that was a hundred years ago, a silent movie theater. Um, and they tore up the stage of the church and found out there was a photo player down there and he kind of kept the keyboard and stuff, mm. but the big like boxes, the part that the yeah. photo, that the, the player reels or whatever went into, they just like took a sledgehammer to him and, uh, and, um, threw him in the, in the dumpster. Yeah. And this guy, the guy who was giving the presentation, this was a different guy at this point. Um, talking specifically about the photo players was like saying like getting mad at the guy with the phone. And he was like, there were two of these and then there were three and now there are two again. <laughs> um, it is. But, uh, anyway, one of the two in existence was in the building. And so oh, wow. uh, after the presentation during the break, uh, this guy went out and, uh, demonstrated it for us and played it. And it was, uh, really cool. Now, how much did the imp of the perverse kick in and you think I'm going to destroy this thing? <laughs> Uh, yeah, of course. I, of course I had that thought. Got my hammer in my back pocket and I know what to do. Um, all right. And then the, this is the last one that I'll go into any detail on. Okay. Uh, and even then not that much. Um, yeah. but I want to mention it. Are because, we still on day two? Uh, yeah, we're on the final day. Oh, this is the final day. Yeah. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I just want to mention, uh, that there was a presentation by the people from Cinelicious Picks who are a, uh, Cinelicious is a post house and a, um, distribution company uh both theatrical and home video stuff and uh it is really interesting how because they're 100 percent in-house they're able to do um more things cheaper and take sort of yeah. risks with with what they but I, we i know we've reviewed some of their blu-rays um on the website i reviewed the uh, agnes farda jane birkin double feature um uh, what is it, jane b par agnes v and uh, kung fu master um and right. then uh Someone reviewed Belladonna of Sadness for us, um, which they showed some. Um, Belladonna of Sadness, I don't know if you read about this recently, is a mm-hmm. 1973 um, sort of erotic animated uh, feature that's oh. recently been restored. And they showed, like... Are there uh, any tentacles involved? I don't uh, know, because okay. I haven't seen it. And I don't care to. Um, I mean, it looks beautiful, but I'm also, like... Not a creep. Um, <laughs> but they did show some like, okay, here's what it looked like on video. And then here's what it looked like when we scanned uh, whatever they scanned, the yeah. negative or whatever they scanned. Here's what it looked like. And then here's what it looks like after we restored everything. Yeah. And it is, it's beautifully done. Do you ever find yourself when you see those? Um, Cause I was, I remember when we were at uh, Comic-Con years ago and they talked about the, the Twin Peaks Blu-ray restoration and they show a before and after. Uh-huh. There's a weird part of me that watches that and I, and I, you know, there's the initial like, oh my gosh, look how much better it looks. And then there's an anger of like, why are we, why were we seeing this shit for all these years? Why are we only getting this now? Yeah. Like we were watching a subpar product for years. See, I I like go the other way where it's like, ah, it was good enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> these kids are not going to know what it's like. Yeah. Uh, you know, once they, if, if they're ever out of school, who knows? Um, 
And then um, they also showed some clips from a, another restoration they recently did, which played at um, the TCM Fest, but I didn't see it there. Uh, it's called Private Property, and it's a, a noir, um, an independent uh, noir film from 19... Uh, with a young Warren Oates. Oh, okay. Where he and another guy are um, criminals who are on the lam, and they find this... Um, essentially a mansion um, that is unoccupied, the person's on vacation or whatever, and mm-hmm. they sort of break in. They're just sort of like laying low in this mansion, yeah. and they become friends with the bored and restless housewife of the mansion next door. That <laughs> sounds like a cool movie. Yeah. Apparently it's pretty dark. Um, uh, but, they, yeah, they showed uh, some clips and some stills of working on that. Uh, and Sinalicious is just a really cool Really cool company, and I think uh, in the years to come we'll be hearing that name more mentioned alongside yeah. things like like Criterion. That's exciting, um, and because they also have one thing that's interesting to them is they they um, generally don't release stuff on home video unless they can also have a sort of uh, theatrical run of it. So um, Belladonna of Sadness played like twelve or fifteen cities, um, including it played the Senate family here, which is why. I, when I heard of it um, and decided I wasn't going to go see yeah. it. Um, but, uh, I don't want to be in a room full of creeps. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. If I'm going to watch that movie, it's going to be alone when no one knows that I'm watching it. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> which, uh, now that I say that, might be more creepy. Um, <laughs> you want to spring it on Natalie. <laughs> be like, hey, we're going to uh, watch a movie. I'll surprise you. That's my wife's name. Oh, yeah, sorry. Um, uh, no, she's always like, you know, you can say my name, no. but I don't know. Uh, I don't want the, I guess I don't want the Cretans who listen to this podcast <laughs> knowing too much about my my home life what kind um, of straw dog situation do you think you're in that the people who listen to this are just yeah. just these hillbillies um, and then uh, so that was cool and then the last presentation was the guy's really interesting and I saw him do a presentation last year his name is Wojtek Janio or Janio um, from fix a film in Poland. Um, but this presentation was not, it was interesting in concept, um, where it was about restoring things that are shot and only ever existed on video because video seen as he talked about it, seen as disposable, even though, yeah. Oh, he got a history of video, which some of it was a little too technical and like, I don't care how video, uh, works, yeah. but some of it was like interesting. I didn't realize video was ex- like invented in the mid fifties. Yeah. I think of it as being a little later than that. Cause it wasn't until the mid seventies that it became more standard for TV shows and stuff to, um, yeah. uh, shoot on, shoot on video. Um, but, uh, he talked about, um, his fix a film in Poland was, um, hired by the BAFTA people to clean <laughs> up some, um, of their award shows from like the eighties oh, okay. that were, uh, so they, they, he showed a clip of, um, uh, Jodie Foster accepting her award for Bugsy Malone, which I guess she oh, laughed wow. for, um, when she was like 14 or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, and did sort of a side by side of like, here's what it looked like when we got it. And here's what it looked like now. And I feel like it's interesting in theory, it's still video at the end of the day. So it still yeah. doesn't look that great. Um, but they were able to do some pretty amazing things because it's not just that it was video. It's also because video was not, is not taken seriously. Some of this stuff wasn't stored super well. So it isn't just that it's a crummy quality. It's that it's deteriorating and jumping and there's, um, you know, tracking issues. If you're going back to your old VCR, you'd be hitting the tracking knob, um, uh, a lot. Uh, so, um, that was interesting in theory, but uh, a little too dry, uh, in execution. 
Yeah. Uh, Paul Goebel often talks about, I think this is why I knew that they used video as far back as uh, the 50s, because he talks about just the tragedy of that from an archiving standpoint. Like there are things that were shot, like TV shows that were shot in the 50s that literally don't exist anymore because they would shoot them on video and then just reuse the video. Yeah. Like, that's crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a shame. Um, I think that may be why, why some early Doctor Who episodes don't exist. Hmm. Because I think, I want to say, like I, I, like I said, this is dry, I kind of tuned out. But I think he was saying, because the, his, the thing he was working with here was British, I think he was saying that like in terms of TV, the British embraced video more quickly than yeah. than we did here in america um so that would make sense with uh with doctor who okay uh and then finally there's the final night screening which i teased before uh robert altman's mccabe and mrs miller nice. which is also um soon to come out on 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 criterion uh blu-ray uh and this was introduced by oh, i forget her name but someone from uh uh criterion uh, I wish I, I feel like the introduction wasn't very long because the day before there had been a whole presentation on the yeah. restoration, but I wasn't there for that. So I don't have much to say about what was, um, what was introduced. Uh, but, uh, there were some interesting stories. Like, I don't know if you know about, um, you've seen the movie. Yes. So the big climactic, uh, sequence goes on for a while of, uh, Warren Beatty, um, uh, being chased by and chasing some guys with guns, yeah. uh, in a snowstorm in this, in this town, um, and the town's called Presbyterian Church. Is that right? I think that's the name of the oh, town. Oh, I don't remember that. Um, anyway, um, and it's during a snowstorm, and you see the snow like build as the, yeah. as the sequence goes on. And so what happened is the, the actual snow you're seeing falling is fake, either fake there or done in post, in early mm. post, where it, and that stuff actually looks pretty crummy. I have to say there's mm. some shots where it's clearly like they're clearly not standing in snow. This was just a, an effect that was put yeah. on uh, later. But what happened is that wasn't supposed to take place in the snow like that. Um, they had a huge snowstorm up in Vancouver where they shot it. And people were like, and, and our album was like, this is great. I can shoot in this. Yeah. And everyone was like, no, this is a freak thing. It's too warm. The snow's all going to melt. So basically what he did is that entire final sequence he shot in reverse chronological order <laughs> so that it looks like the snow's building as it was melting. Wow, that's great. <laughs> Isn't that awesome? See, he was a genius. <laughs> uh, yeah, and a misogynist. But this is not one of his more misogynistic movies, I would say. I mean, the uh, women aren't treated uh, well because they weren't historically, but right. I think in terms of how he treats uh, women as characters, um, sure. I think he's, he's respectful, and I think uh, Julie Christie's character is fantastic. She is. Uh, in my paper about uh, Robert Altman misogyny, I did point out that uh, Mrs. Miller is a very, very capable, very strong woman until the chips are down. And then she has to go smoke opium because she's a little bit cowardly. And she has to let, uh, she has to let McCabe go and do it. She has to let the man, admittedly, she, who is himself very cowardly. I think that's, see, that's not my read on that situation. Okay. And, this is about and I haven't people, seen it in, for, in a very long um, time. People, uh, if you haven't seen it, I'm not going to, I'll try not to spoil it too much, but I think that's her being smart and saying there's no way this is going to go well. Right. There's no point in standing in, in standing my ground here. Yeah. Um, so I think she's uh, doing what probably a woman in her position at that time um, would have to do, which is just surviving. And so I think, I mean, yeah, the opium addiction, notwithstanding that's sure. a whole other thing, but I don't see her um, as cowardly. I think that she's smarter than McCabe. 
But that's the thing. She needs McCabe to be dumb because someone needs to stand up, you know, and it's not going to be her. No, I see. That's not. I don't think anyone needs to stand up. I think McCabe's dumbness about halfway through the movie seals their fate, and the second half of the movie is yeah. just grinding towards this inevitable, inevitable ending. So no one needed to stand up. I think once she realized, which it seriously is, like almost halfway through the movie, the big night when the people come to try and buy out uh, yeah. the two uh, people try to come to try and buy out his bar in whorehouse place, yeah. um, and that his behavior there pretty much seals the fate for the rest of the movie. Um, and I think she realizes that that night. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, I, I, I don't, uh, I don't think, um, I think the movie's very fatalistic, which is not, um, yeah. Uncommon for Robert Altman. I would say that, uh, the film, because that's the thing for my paper, obviously I focused, focused in on like how he dealt with Mrs. Miller. I think this film could very well, it's not merely misogynistic. I think you could say it's generally a misanthropic, um, I guess, or yeah, fatalism I, is definitely. I feel like a, I, it's, I, I'm so not used to being in the position of defending Robert Altman, yeah. but I feel like the the women in the film, all of whom are prostitutes, even the one Shelley Duvall who doesn't start as a prostitute becomes yeah. a prostitute, yeah. uh, and, and then some start as prostitutes and become uh, cooks and maids or whatever. Yeah. But at one point or another, every one way woman, or another, yeah. <laughs> every woman in the movie is a prostitute. And yet I do feel like they are treated with a great deal of respect. I definitely think more so than a lot of his other films, especially because Mrs. Miller is such a strong character that is developed, uh, as a lead. Um, I, I, yeah, which I don't know if you know, the novel is just called McCabe. Oh, really? It's based on, yeah. There you go. Anyway, um, Robert Altman, the, uh, the height of, uh, women's rights and feminism. Apparently. Because he added, um, and Mrs. Miller. Yeah. No, it's a very, very good movie. It's not, um, I don't think it's Robert Altman's best. I know some people do. I'm not sure what I would consider his best. I know, um, I know I love three women, but that's a super like asshole pick because it's like, <laughs> it's the most, uh, uh, overtly artsy of his movies. Um, do you have a favorite Robert Altman movie? Well, Nashville. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, a lot of people these days, I'd say a lot of people our age say the player. Um, I like that. Movie. It's great. It's yeah. a, it's a great movie. Um, but, uh, I think, I mean, Nashville, I think is his best. I feel like I don't hear a lot of people say mash anymore. I think people yeah, are, have moved away from that. Well. Um, what about the Vincent long, and Theo? A lot of people <laughs> going to bat for Vincent and Theo. I did I not like see that. Movie. I believe you had it on VHS. Did you no, not? I think you had it on VHS. Oh yeah. That's never right. Watched it. Yeah. I bought it for like 25 cents and I um, watched it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Um, I do think, um, the Long Goodbye is pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm I watched, not, that's my favorite. I'm not sure if I'm I would say, say that that's his best, but uh, that's, but that's it's up there. Yeah. So, um, Robert Altman. Yeah, and McCabe and Mrs. Miller. Um, very, yeah, very good movie. Um, and if, if you haven't seen Secret Honor, seek that out. That's I, pretty I actually amazing. never have seen. It's Secret great. Honor. All right, um, you can. That's uh, that's the real thing. Uh, I hope I get to go again next year. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Provided what these on. politics don't <laughs> flare up, um, but. Uh, I really, really hope I do because, um, it's a, it's a blast. Um, uh, and, uh, thanks for, you know, listening to me talk about it. Uh, you can find us at battleshipretention.com and you can find our real thing episode from last year. Um, and you can find, uh, all sorts of movie reviews and to, including Tyler's review of beat the devil. If you use our search bar, I'm sure you, Indeed. Can, you can find it. I did. I found it easily. Um, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Why are you bragging about that? Uh, <laughs> I found it super easy. Uh, you know what I'm What's bragging? You know what I'm bragging? What's that? Because 
our website, the mm-hmm. search bar, it works really well. It you does. You don't have to like try and trick it. Yeah. I find with some some websites, including you and I both love the AV Club. Try finding something that's more than two days old on the AV Club. Yeah. It's fucking impossible. Yeah. It's very um, frustrating. Uh, Battleship Retention, you can always find what you're looking for. That's um, right. uh, that's Especially if what well. you're looking for is quality film discussion. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can uh, follow me on Twitter at Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Now, what's going on over at uh, More Than One Lesson this week? Well, you're, com- you're, you're venting. Yeah, there's a couple big things. Number one is uh, a lot of people said that I should, that I should see Sausage Party, and uh, I've enjoyed the work of uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg previously but when people said that oh there's like a big uh, you know they talk about religion it's like yes i'm sure they do <laughs> i'm sure they talk about religion and i'm sure it's because i i had seen this as the end and it's pretty funny but i think it's i think it's uh, views of religion are remarkably simplistic um and but i went to see it and i uh thought that their views on religion got more simplistic um and their mythology does not work well um but that's okay. So I, I wrote something and uh, recorded it by myself for like 15 minutes long. But the big thing happening at More Than One Lesson right now okay. that I really want to tell people about, uh, we have our first ever uh, like spinoff podcast. Oh, my. My co-host, Reed Lackey, brought in a friend of his named uh, Nathan Rouse. And they are, uh, this is the first week they put out a, a show called The Fear of God, which is uh, all about horror and uh, oh. obviously with a Christian spin on it. Um, but yeah, there are not a lot of other podcasts out there like that. And it's uh, it's very exciting. Reed loves horror more than almost anybody else I know. And every time we do uh, a Halloween Times, it's kind of the Reed show, uh, the Reed uh-huh. and Tyler show for the most part. And so uh, so I'm very excited to see what, uh, what he does. I actually know what he is going to be doing like six weeks in advance. But it's very exciting. They'll be talking about uh, Devil... Uh, the Conjuring, um, Sinister, and Ten Cloverfield Lane, which I you could say is not a horror movie, but it's I'd it can qualify. Sure, I'm, I have no problem with that. Um, but yeah, so that you can find that at morethanonelesson dot com, and it is now on iTunes as well. Uh, my other podcast is about television. It's called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. We're back from our two week hiatus, and we'll be doing uh, a um, early uh, fall TV preview. This is not like the ones that I've done with Kate Kozik of the Televerse where we actually watch stuff. Yeah. This is based on the name of the show and the premise and the yeah. characters. Do we think this is going to be good yeah. or not? And Paul makes a bunch of dumb jokes that oh. will crack me up. Okay, good. That's like <laughs> the highlight of my year yeah, is him yeah. making those dumb jokes. Yeah. Uh, yeah for, for pretty much each, yeah. each pilot, he has some dumb tied into the title of the show some yeah. d- way of dismissing it exactly. in a way that's all uh, it's been a highlight going back to the old paul global show uh before hey watch this so uh you can find that at battleship retention.com uh thanks for listening we'll get you next time bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 